Hello, you're listening to the Exocast, the podcast where we'll take you on a journey out of the solar system to explore exoplanets, alien worlds around distant stars. This week, we're going to take a brief look at the history of exoplanets, cast a critical eye over the concept of the habitable zone, and look at the first temperature map of a rocky exoplanet. First, let's meet the three exocasters. So Hannah Wakeford studies clouds in exoplanet atmospheres using Hubble, and does this at NASA Goddard in DC. And we also have Andrew Rusby, who uh, analyzes the habitability of Earth-like worlds uh, and helps run a group called Nexus uh, at NASA Ames in California. And finally, uh, our, our introducer was, uh, was Hugh Osborne, who hunts for uh, transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick. Um, so first off, Hannah is going to take us through a history of exoplanet discovery and detection, um, going back to the days of old. The idea of exoplanets themselves has been dotted around people's conscious for thousands of years. It was back in ancient Greece uh, in 400 AD that the idea was first discussed through the records that we actually have. But the fact that people would have looked up and seen the stars and seen the planets moving uh, and determined that, you can't help but think, are we alone? Is there other planets out there? And it was Epicurus, the ancient Greek, who started the philosophy which discussed the idea that there are infinite worlds both like and unlike our own. And it wasn't actually until the Middle Ages that the idea was taken to be blasphemous and the church kind of stumped it down. And one of the first people to mention that the Earth uh, Earth and Sun might be unique was Giordano Bruno, and he was actually burnt at the stake for charges of heresy against the church for this. So the Middle Ages really kind of crushed the idea um, that the ancient Greeks came up with. And then later Copernicus introduced the idea that the sun was in fact the centre of the solar system and not the earth, and pushed forward those ideas. And in 1600, when Galileo uh, first used the telescope to observe many, many more stars than what we can see with our eyes, and also the orbits of the moons around Jupiter, the idea that other worlds could exist once again kind of took hold in philosophy and science of the time. And by the late 1600s, Christiana Hudgens postulated that if we could observe the moons of Jupiter orbiting the planet, could we not then observe the orbits of other planets around their stars? Now, the main problem here is that No one had any idea how far away these stars actually were. So the work was not fully understood, but the idea was always in place. Now, this work was actually published uh, in the translated version of his book, Cosmotheros, after his death. Uh, And it's the first published work that talks of a method that we use today, this transit method. And that was over 400 years ago. So this is nothing new. But... Everything seems to take a while in exoplanet discoveries. It was the mid-1800s that the first false detection is claimed. So a Captain W.S. Jacob from the East India Observatory uh, observed a star and claimed that there was a planet orbiting it from the observations that they made. Uh, But this was the first of many, many false alarms for the next 140 years. 
So it wasn't until 1992 when a two rocky worlds were discovered around a pulsar, and this is a dead neutron star. So this is a very strange place that we never imagined them before. And then in 1995, this is the first detection of a planet going around a star like the sun. It took from the 1800s, that first false detection, to 1995 to find another world going around a sunlight star. And that was done by Didier Kellor and Michel Mayer. And they, that's a planet half the size of Jupiter orbiting 51 peg. And that was the staple of when exoplanets really, really kicked off. And since then, it's fueled a huge number of investigations that the three of us are actually part of now doing our doing our work. And all of this thing comes from the fact that we could never imagine the types of planets that we've been discovering. They didn't appear in science fiction. They didn't appear in science fact until multiple confirmations. And it was just one week later after that first discovery in 95 that they confirmed that planet was there and many, many more started spinning out of the woodwork and different scientific investigations. So our imaginations restricted us in the early eras of exoplanet discoveries. And maybe we should have taken a little bit of a page from Epicurus's philosophy of just thinking there are many infinite worlds like and unlike our own. I love the history of exoplanets. It always makes me think. I would say, I mean, that was excellent. And, you know, I learned quite a few more uh, things about exoplanet history than I thought I knew. But again, it just seems like a lot of exoplanet history and the discovery of planets around other stars is it's just a series of, of demotions of the Earth and of humanity. And there's always pushback against that. There's always the idea that, you know, this has to be a special planet and we have to be in a privileged frame of reference. But the more planets we discover and, and you know, the more we think about the, the, the uniqueness of all these different worlds, the more we realise that maybe there is just a series of demotions ahead of us. Does that, does that seem fair? Um, I wouldn't take it as demotions. I mean, that's that's definitely one way of putting it. But I take it as, you know, we're truly we can't understand what it means to be the Earth and it means to be us as a, the human race here thinking uniquely about these things. If we don't find all of these very strange, different planets and it's not really a demotion in my head, it's really a promotion to the fact that we're able to sit here and question this question. How did that planet form? These, the 51 Pegasi B, this first planet that was discovered, is so unlike anything that theories came up with before. We d honestly did not think that this type of planet so close to its star could exist. And that, to me, just opens up the doors and says, actually, the Earth is in such a unique place. Humanity is in such a unique age that we can sit and think about these things. How, how many of... How big is the chance that that can occur. So I think it's, I just think it makes us even greater. That's a wonderfully optimistic way of looking at it. And I think I'm going well, I'm I'm to adopt that from now on. And it's just, I often hear people say, you know, how can you bear to think about distances that are light years away and, 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 and billions of years and the concept of deep time and deep space, doesn't it just make you a bit depressed? But I always thought that because we can think about those, those distances and those times and we're here and able to do that, it makes us 
kind of central, you know, scientifically and philosophically to the whole to the whole argument. Even if we are maybe stuck out on the Orion arm of of of, of the gal- of the galaxy uh, in the kind of suburbs, we might not be central in space, but I think we're central kind of in time and in science, and that's really cool. So you mentioned all these extreme planets that we did just didn't expect to find, such as pulsar planets and hot Jupiters that we don't see in our own solar system. Um, and obviously we're, we're good at detecting them now, but do you think there's any extreme exoplanets that we haven't found yet? Maybe types of exoplanets that we, we might find in the future that we just don't expect? Oh, almost certainly. Nature's imagination is so much better than our own. Like, so much better than our own that I can only, like, dream of what it's going to come up with. I have no clue. It's going to be amazing. I think we're, there's so many things that we can are left to discover and actually understand um, that nature has already kind of developed and already run through a number of permutations and, and tried things out and seen if it worked and then we'll find whatever's left. And I, I honestly think that there's so many different things out there that, that are left for us to explore. So would you, do you think it's, a, it's a, a failing of our predictive models or are we updating them as we go? Um, why, why didn't we expect or why can't we expect to find um, these exotic worlds? I think it's a combination of creativity and imagination, which I think is key to the work that we do. Um, and also our understanding of physics combining that with our believability so you can make a model and people have now made a model using the same mathematics the same physics same dynamics uh, as we had before to form these hot jupiters but it's it's a failure of our our imaginations to not chuck those models out and say well that can't be right um so i think it's that that unique combination um where we don't we just take everything that we see from from what physics can come up with and say, okay, how would I then observe that? What tests can I do to see if this is correct? Rather than just uh, potentially dismissing something that is so completely strange to us right now that we couldn't imagine it. Okay, thanks for that, Hannah. And now Andrew's going to give a brief and critical overview of the concept of the habitable zone. Thanks, Hugh. Um, so as, as Hannah mentioned, oftentimes the draw of finding planets outside the solar system revolves around the possibility of them hosting life. Um, and I think as we learn more about planets in our own solar system and the, the, the requirements for life on this planet, we begin to think about some of the factors that might be necessary to support this kind of life on other planets. It kind of follows that we, we'd start thinking about that. Um, and, you know, this line of reasoning resulted in the development of the habitable zone way back in the 1960s. So this is a, a concept, an astronomical concept, um, that defines uh, an area uh, in the orbit of a star uh, in which an Earth-like planet would be able to support liquid water on its surface. Um, so there's a couple of things to note in that definition um, that I just want to discuss quickly. And one of them is liquid water and the other one is the concept of Earth-like and what that means. Um, so liquid water is is considered absolutely fundamental requirement for life, uh, and it makes sense then that the, 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 it should form the basis of this prerequisite for habitable conditions. Um, if we look at the Earth, for example, every single organism um, needs liquid water at some stage in its life cycle. Um, it's also 
it's wonderfully versatile as a solvent. You can dissolve a lot of stuff in it, which is great for biochemistry. It's great for geochemistry. Uh, and it just has some weird chemical properties and physical properties that makes it behave kind of strangely uh, under different pressures and temperatures and the phase changes are, are really are really unusual uh, and importantly it's it's ubiquitous it's it's everywhere that we've you know we've 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 discovered so far everywhere we look we find um, you know liquid water or evidence for liquid water um so that one kind of makes sense um but what about the other part of that that concept the the earth like part um well i mean at first at first listen that that sounds reasonable right um as you know, Earth is the only planet that we know of that can host life now, that has life on it. Um, but I think as we learn more about, well, as we have learned more about other planets in our solar system and, and think about other planets uh, in, in, in other solar systems, we're coming to realize that the environment of the Earth, while definitely an oasis for life, uh, might not represent the only conditions in, in which life could thrive. Um, so other planets like uh, ancient Mars uh, or, or moons of, of, of gas giants in the solar system like Europa and Enceladus and Titan, they also host potentially habitable environments, but they all fall outside of this habitable zone limit, which isn't really set up to incorporate planets like that and environments like that. Um, and I mean, besides what, what are the chances that the planets that we discover in the rest of the galaxy are going to be exactly like the Earth? I mean, this definition depends on them having the same atmosphere, the same ocean coverage and chemical composition and being the same size, orbiting a similar star. Uh, and I know we have billions of planets to work with and yeah, that will probably work out and some planets will be relatively close to that, but how reasonably, uh, or how reasonable and importantly restrictive is that definition? I think it's too restrictive. I think there's plenty of habitable environments out there. But the truth is that that planets are hard, right? They're going to be made up of different stuff uh, and in different proportions and different configurations. And that stuff is going to interact with other stuff in different ways, many ways that we can't even imagine yet, as, as Hannah touched on. Um, so we're at a stage now where we're still kind of getting a good idea about how our planet works and how it's co-evolved with life on its surface and in its oceans. And I feel like the habitable zone is a useful concept um, because it's observable uh, and it's a good place to start looking. Uh, you know, we can look at a star and say, you know, it's this big and it's this bright. Therefore, if there was an Earth-like planet, even with all these restrictions, it would be at roughly this distance. So that's useful. Um, but I just don't think we know enough yet to say definitively, yes, this is a habitable planet. This is Earth 2.0 or Earth twin or whatever the next news headline is going to be. Um, so that's my, my critical rundown of habitability and the habitable zone. I hope it didn't come off as too pessimistic because I think that there are some really exciting developments coming up in this field, but we need to move away perhaps from this, this traditional concept. So you mentioned Europa, and obviously we think that Europa might have a heat source from uh, its orbit around Jupiter, it means that the water inside Europa is, is sort of heated from below. Um, but do you think that that life, any life that develops subsurface, is, um, is has has as much potential as as on an Earth-like planet where the source of energy is from, say, the sun, where we we obviously get a much more constant and and uh, much larger amount of energy that we that, that life on Earth has been able to use than than Europa might. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I, I think your uh, your Earth-like bias is 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 you know, laid out there by use of the word potential here. Sure, I mean, this life might not 
be as large should it exist. It might not be able to, as you say, exploit the same amount of energy, um, but um, you know, should it exist and um, you know, the, the possibility uh, is there, um, then I think it illustrates that um, if we can find life on another planet, on another moon like Europa, I think that, that illustrates the fact that maybe getting life going, the first stage in the development of, of, of life and eventually leading up to you know, maybe intelligent life isn't that difficult. And I think that's, that's a very important discovery to make. If we can find life on another planet, as simple as it might be, you know, kind of analogous with bacteria or single-celled organisms, it's still incredibly important to find that life because then it says that if we have two independent cases where life has started, um, then you know, we, we have a much stronger idea about how difficult um, you know, it is to get life going in the first place. So what would you say to a pessimist who would say that Venus sits just on the edge of the habitable zone uh, and as does Mars? What then are the chances of us, when we're making these observations, you know, misclassifying a planet as habitable? Um, as we know, Venus in our solar system is furthest from habitable you can imagine in our own solar system uh pressures so high temperatures so high uh sulfuric acid rain it's a horrible place but it's it's something that from what i understand can very very easily happen to a planet um so when you're looking in this habitable zone what would you suggest as kind of more of a constraint a restriction so we're not picking up those types of planets yeah, I think we are going to get mis misclassification. It's it's inevitable, I, I think. But the way that we can avoid this is, one, getting a better handle on atmospherics and getting data from atmospheres that can provide us with that information. We'd be able to tell that there was a runaway greenhouse event on, on Venus if we had some um, you know, spectroscopy or equivalent, if we were looking at the solar system from afar. The other constraint might be the time that that, that, that planet has been habitable for. Um, Hugh and I actually worked on a paper a few years ago where we tried to work out how the habitable zone changes over time. And if you can determine that maybe um, the habitable zone has moved outwards uh, proportional to the increase in brightness of the star, then you could say actually, yes, though maybe Venus was habitable in the past, but it's, it's almost certainly too hot now. And maybe Mars might be habitable in the future if we somehow gave it an atmosphere of some variety. So I think getting a handle on where the habitable zone is in time is just as important as getting a handle on it in space. It seems to me there's a, there's a lot of models out there that adapt on the habitable zone and they, they add a parameter, be it um, looking at moons around planets that might be in, in a habitable zone or um, around certain binaries or, or adding things like size and in all cases they make the habitable zone almost too complicated to be used I think I think that its simplicity works in its for its advantage it's the fact that you can plug in a star and, and at least get and, and not, not not necessarily um, perfectly accurate but um, at least you can get some handle on where around this star there could be liquid water on the surface of a planet and I think that, that that's kind of the beauty of the habitable zone as well as its downfall. I think um, as a concept, it is taken too too literally by a, a lot of media outlets and a, and a lot of people. Um, but as a concept, it's a really good idea that that um, that is the mo mo probabilistically the most likely point you're going to find 
an Earth-like planet that might, you know, have life on its surface. Um, so do you think, like, adding to the habitable zone with extra parameters like this is, is actually going to help things or confuse things, Andrew? No, I think you're right, Hugh. Uh, it's, it's only going to end up, end up confusing matters. Um, I've often found that the people who you speak to about the habitable zone, depending on where they work, see it being useful for different reasons. So uh, my, my boss at AIM, she sees the habitable zone as the only way she understood it was just the flux incident on a planet, so how much light it's receiving. She wasn't considering at all the possibility of you know, different atmospheres and sizes and masses because she sees it as an astronomer, as something that she can use to, to um, you know, constrain observations of potentially habitable planets. And that's, I think, its most useful um, kind of characteristic is that it is at this stage an observable feature. Um, if we continue to, to, to run models and, and, and define it and, and make it more complex, I think it only illustrates its limitations and doesn't draw on its strengths, which is its simplicity. The only way we're actually ever going to definitively say a planet's habitable is uh, with more information, which we currently we don't have. So now Hugh is going to take us through some of the news in exoplanets for the past month, including some cool new detections of a small planet. Cool, thanks Anna. I'll start with just a general sort of overview of the news of the last month. Um, okay, so I'll start with Kepler. Um, earlier this month, uh, for a couple of days, the Kepler Space Telescope, which searches for transiting exoplanets, um, the NASA team sent a, a radio message to it and found out that it was in emergency mode. Um, but after three days of, of mild panic, I guess, although Andrew can, uh, can attest for that, um, the engineers managed to save the ailing satellite, so it looks like they're ready to resume operations soon, although they're not, still not quite sure what caused the downtime. Um, in other news, uh, University of Extra astronomers made what could be the first concrete evidence for titanium oxide in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. Uh, they studied WASP-121b, a hot Jupiter that's 900 light-years away, and um, used the Hubble Space Telescope to look at the spectra of this planet and found definitive water and also tentative vanadium oxide and, as I mentioned, titanium oxide. Um, on to something that may or may not be exoplanet news, the Breakthrough Starshot campaign that was recently announced. It's a $100 million, pound, or $100 million sorry, prize that is hopes to send tiny nano spaceships to Alpha Centauri, our nearest star system, uh, which was recently demoted of a, of a planet. Um, Alpha Centauri B, of course, no longer, no longer we think, exists. Um, but they plan to send one gram spaceships at 0.2 of the speed of light. Um, so 0.2 C to Alpha Cent in only 20 years. So hopefully we'll be able to get some data from that system and see if there are actually planets there in the next, well, decade, I guess, or, or two decades. Um, and from one laser mission to an, another laser-based paper, um, a tongue-in-cheek paper at the start of this month, although not actually on April Fool's Day, I have to point out, showed that you could, with a couple of moderately powered lasers, mask the Earth and its transit um, method, its, its transit across its star, um, from alien satellites like Kepler. So using a couple of lasers spaced out on the planet, you could point them away from the Earth and create an ANSI transit that would effectively cloak the uh, the, the transit of, of Earth, or maybe maybe alien civilizations are doing this to their own planets. 
Um, and I think I'll be using that as an excuse the next time my supervisor asks me why I haven't found any. Um, so yeah, so the news I, I, I'm going to go into detail on is a recent study of 55 Cancri E. So um, this is a, a, a super-Earth, uh, one of the brightest and closest super-Earths uh, that we know of. So it's around a, a star that you can actually see with your naked, the naked eye in the night sky. Um, and using the Spitzer Space Telescope, this, a team of researchers from Cambridge were able to map the surface of a rocky exoplanet um, and found what could be evidence of an exoplanetary molten lava ocean. Uh, so I'll go into a li little bit more detail in that one. So how can we map an exoplanet? Uh, exoplanets are too far away and, and, and too um, dwarfed in brightness by their star to ever hope to obtain a direct image of the surface. Um, so instead what the team did here was they, they, they built up what's known as the phase curve of the planet. So what they did is they looked at the star and the planet system in the infrared. So that's the region where um, the planet will, will glow. So it's beyond red in, in, the, in the spectrum. Um, so the star is obviously glowing in, in the yellow or white region. And the planet, a lot cooler, but still substantially hotter than Earth, is glowing in the infrared. So they looked at the, the, how the brightness of this combined star and planet change over the course of the planet's orbit. So over each orbit, different phases of the planet are actually contributing uh, infrared light to our, to our telescope. And so the hotter the, um, the, the, the temperature of the side that is facing Earth at any one particular time, the more flux we actually observe. So they did this for, I think, about 75 hours they, they stared at this planet. And they saw exactly that. They saw that the night side of the planet was coolest. So that's the, that's the point when the planet actually transits across its star. Um, and that the, the sun-baked day side, so when the, sun, the planet is facing us, is hottest. And actually, it's, it's 2,700 Kelvin, so hot enough, in fact, to melt lead. So that's a seriously hot planet right there. Um, the most interesting thing, even, I mean, so, so they managed to get a map of the, temp the, the temperature of this planet, which is interesting in itself. But they also found that the hottest part of the planet wasn't directly at noon, effectively. It was, it was shifted slightly towards the, the night side by 41 degrees. And that's kind of weird when you think about it, because if there's no rotation on this planet, we think it's been circularized and, and tidally locked to its star, so that one face constantly points towards its star, a bit like the moon to Earth, then you wouldn't expect any flux to be moved towards the night side at all. So there must be something causing this heat to be circularized or circulated away from noon towards the, the, the edge of the planet. Um, however, also kind of weird was that, that they, made, they were able to measure the night temperature of 1300 degrees Kelvin. So this is a lot less. So in fact, there can't be much circulation that's taking heat from the night side to the, or the day side to the night side because the, the night side was so much colder. So there's, there's some sort of circulation going on that's, that's moving the heat from this planet away from the centre, from the substellar point, as we call it. But it's not uh, efficiently moving heat to the night side. Um, so what could possibly be, be doing that? Well, for hot Jupiters, which have thick hydrogen-helium atmospheres, it's relatively easy to move heat around as you like, just by uh, using sort of winds in thick atmospheres. However, hydrogen and helium are light, fluffy gases, and we know the density of this planet, and its density is very similar to that of Earth, so we think that it's a rocky planet rather than having any gas on its surface. Um, so maybe there could be a heavier atmosphere, maybe there could be something like um, 
vaporized carbon dioxide or water. Um, and these could be the, the, the species doing the circulation. But, the, but they also ha found problems with this model as well, um, mostly because carbon dioxide and water have specific uh, spectral... They, have, they, they specifically... Uh, they're systematically cooler in the region of light that they were looking at the planet in. So a temperature of 2,700 degrees on the day side is far too high for an atmosphere of carbon dioxide and water. Um, the planet is also so close to its star that they would require an atmosphere 30,000 times thicker than Earth's just to survive the blasting of, of 55 cancries, solar wind and x-rays and all the other things that stars throw, throw off. So one answer could be that the super-Earth has a thin atmosphere, but it's made of something like silicates. So these on Earth are obviously in the form of rocks, but if you're close enough at, at, at the proximity of this planet to its star, then you can vaporise the silicates. So there could be a vaporised silicates circulating on the day side, but these, when they get to the night side, are cool enough to condense out and effectively remove any atmosphere and stop any circulation to the night side. And another theory, as I mentioned at the start, um, and is, is obviously my favourite, is that the planet has no atmosphere at all. And instead, the circulation is, is, is not being done by winds, but it's being done by molten lava flows. And this is perfectly reasonable to, to expect. I mean, we're at 2,700 degrees uh, on the surface. Rock is, is likely to be melted at that temperature. And it could certainly, if it's hot enough, start a large convective flow and, and maybe have full-scale tectonics on, on, the, on the limb as well. And and just, um, just picturing a molten surface is quite an amazing thing. And we've been able to detect that from so far away and, and from with just the photons from the star and planet. Um, so it's quite an impressive detection right there. And hopefully we can apply this technique to new planets um, and, and be able to map the temperatures and maybe find more of these, more evidence of these like, volcanic lava-covered worlds. Go back here. I, I enjoy your enthusiasm for for fifty five Cancri. <laughs> it's a good planet. Do you believe it? The the lava. Um, I so what I imagine when I think of a lava planet is an exposed mantle planet, and we know that there's huge amounts of convection and dynamics in the Earth's mantle, so. I, I'm imagining something more like that, where you don't ever form a crust, you don't ever form a solid surface on the day side. So you would expect convection to be occurring. Um, and if that goes deep enough, then you could shift it quite easily to to the degree that they've seen. Um, I'm a little more skeptical. All of my work is on magnesium silicates and clouds and higher temperature species like that. Um, and the idea that you have enough material to form a cloud, uh, a gas phase on the day side, transported to the night side where it condenses, there's to me, there's no recycling back to the day side again. Yeah, that's and for that kind of theory, you need a recycle point where otherwise you end up with a buildup and, and the dark side of your planet, the night side of your planet becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, reducing the day side of your planet. So uh, that's where my my imagination is, is stumping me at the moment. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess... a fault of my own. One thing is anything. that we think it's tidally locked, but if it's not, you you have that inbuilt recycling right there because you're, you're transporting stuff to the night side and if there's a slow planetary rotation for whatever reason, then it's being brought back around. Um, so that could possibly yeah, explain so the, it, I guess. Con 
the considerations there would have to be timescales, and it all comes down to these timescales. How quickly uh, do you need to transport it to keep this as an active process so that we would have observed this happening? Um, and if it's not rotating or if it is rotating, you know, how much material do you need to keep this process going for a significant amount of time uh, for us to be observing it? And that's the thing with the habitable zone as well, bringing it back around, is that you, it needs to exist in a time frame as well as uh, a physical frame. So it, it, everything goes down to fourth dimen four dimensions in, when we're doing astronomy. We're looking at a single snapshot in time. So it has to have existed for a significant amount of that for us to have seen it. Otherwise, that's just fluke and we're all crazy. So now on to our monthly Adopt a Planet segment. And Andrew this month has gone with Kepler 10b, I think. Is that right? Yeah, thanks, Hugh. So uh, in keeping with the, the firsts and the historical nature of, of this particular exocast, uh, the planet I've selected for this for this month's adopter planet is also somewhat of a first and deserves its own place in history. Uh, so Kepler 10b was the first confirmed terrestrial planet. Uh, so that's one that's made up of rocks and, and minerals with a with a metal core that has been discovered outside of our solar system. So it was announced uh, in in 2011 in in, in, um, in January. So just over just over five years ago now. Um, and has a mass about three times that of Earth, um, with about uh, 1.4 times uh, Earth radii. Um, so it's it's a long way away, uh, about 500-ish light years, uh, with quite a large error margin, uh, in the constellation Draco. Um, it's it's a pretty interesting planet, uh, beyond the fact that it's you know kind of the first terrestrial uh, planet discovered, in that it's it's tidally locked. Uh, it orbits um, a, a sun-like star. Um, but very, very closely, so less than 2% of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, um, which makes it very, very hot. So Kepler-10b is, is quite sun-like in many respects, it's a G-type star. Um, so the temperature on the day side of Kepler-10b might be about 1800 Kelvin, which is you know, like a blast furnace. So that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. And in fact, the reason it was you know, detected and, and was detectable was because it was so hot and threw up a really, really good signal. Um, so the discovery was made by the Kepler Space Telescope team, and in this case, by Natalie Vitalia, who's my boss at Ames. So I thought in this first exocast, I should give her a shout out. Um, and I think it's important because it kind Let's of... see how it goes. <laughs> you know, nepotism. <laughs> um, it's important as it confirmed that, firstly, terrestrial planets do exist. We, I mean, we thought, we thought as much, but good scientists should always be confirming those assumptions. And secondly, it bridged the gap between all the gas giants that Kepler had found and planets like the Earth. Um, and it, you know, it gave us a first tentative glimpse of of what they're made out of. So uh, this month's adopter planet is Kepler 10b. Absolutely brilliant! So thank you for listening from me, Hannah, and Hugh and Andrew. We have covered the history of exoplanets, the habitable zone, some new news with a molten lava exoplanet, and we've adopted Kepler 10b as our star planet for the month. Um, next, we will be taking you to future missions. Hugh's going to be discussing uh, what you can do to kick a planet into a very strange orbit. Uh, and I will give you some highlights from the month of exoplanets. But thank you for joining us for Exocast 1B. Um, and make sure you follow us on our Twitter at exo underscore cast 
on Facebook, Exocast, and at exocast.com. Exocast.